Hi, I'm Jacob. And I'm Grace. Welcome back to Fly on the Wall. We hope you enjoyed our special election night episode last week and can't wait to bring you this interview with GU Politics fellow Anna Nawaz. Yes, Ms. Nawaz was so exciting to speak with. Uh, I really appreciated how open she was about her career narrative. Um, so, Ms. Nawaz is the chief correspondent and primary substitute anchor at PBS NewsHour. Uh, she joined in 2018 after being a correspondent for ABC News, where she covered the 2016 presidential election, and serving as a foreign correspondent at NBC News, reporting from the Middle East. That is such an incredible background and definitely why I had so much fun hearing from her. Before we get into it, though, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or you can email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Let's get into it. Thank you so much, Ms. Navaz, for, for coming on the pod with us. Uh, we're very excited to sit down with you, uh, talk about your career and your perspective a little bit. Thank you. Please call me Amna. Oh, will do. Thank <laughs> um, yeah, so we're just going to kick it off with a very simple question. What motivated you to pursue a career in journalism? Was there an aha moment that made you realize that it was the right career for you? Yeah, it was one of those moments where world events collide and line up to show you a path that you didn't think was there before. So I was going to go to law school. That was always the plan. Um, I studied politics, philosophy, and economics for my undergrad. I took my LSAT, and I was ready to go and pursue this career that my parents were very happy with, too. And um, I realized I didn't want to sit in a classroom for three more years. I was very much an experiential learner. Like I learned by doing and I just didn't want to spend three more years sitting in class. So I told my parents, look, I just want to take a year and kind of do something, get some real life experience and then I'll go to law school. And uh, they said, fine, you know, get a job, get some experience, get a fellowship. And I ended up applying for a journalism fellowship at ABC News Nightline, which was in Washington, D.C., led by Ted Koppel at the time. And uh, it was random. I had no journalism experience, but they liked bringing someone on board who didn't have a background to see if you had fresh ideas, a new way of doing things. And that was August of 2001 that I started that job. And then literally weeks into my very first job in the real world, the 9-11 attacks happened and this country changed. And I would argue the world changed. And I saw in that moment when There was just fear and panic and chaos across the entire country. Everyone turned on their TVs. Everyone wanted to feel better and understand what was happening and make sense of it. And they turned on their TVs. And I thought, oh, like this is the public service. This is the mission. Like this is how you make people understand and informed and be there for them in these times. And if personally for me, Just the pursuit of facts every day was solace and mission for me, and it got me through some really personally difficult times. And I just couldn't see myself doing anything else after. So uh, now you're certainly somewhat of a trailblazer, having having been one of one of the first Muslim people to moderate a presidential debate. Um, But what was that identity like for you back in that time? Um, Back in the following of of the 9-11 attacks uh, when Islamophobia was such a political force? It was really hard. Um, I was, in at that time, the only Muslim person in the newsroom. Um, and in most of my career, that's been the case. I think it's changed depending on the team I'm on, but that's often been the case. And when you think about the amount of coverage that American news organizations have put towards 
covering Muslim Americans or covering Muslims around the world or covering Islam or covering extremist uh, issues around the religion, there are very few people at the table who have any lived experience and firsthand experience with the faith. And that's a problem in our coverage. And I think it showed up in our coverage as U.S. news organizations in the immediate aftermath of those attacks. And so I always saw my presence and my voice in those newsrooms as just crucially important, right? There has to be someone who could feel a lot of those questions that were informing the stories that were being told to millions of Americans every day. And so it was hard because my family and my community and me personally, quite frankly, were living through a lot of that Islamophobia. I can't tell you the number of times I've had things said to me or directed towards me. Social media is a nightmare some days, depending on the issues. But, you know, you realize when you are one of the few in the room, how important it is to be there. And that's been true my entire career. That's really great to hear. And so at the same time, um, you also previously served as a foreign correspondent at NBC, and you covered current events in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, all over that region. Could you tell us about that experience and what it was like navigating kind of that intersection of domestic and foreign politics? Yeah, being a foreign correspondent was always a dream of mine, uh, mainly because I grew up in a very international home and with a very kind of big worldview. We would spend the school year here in the States, my family and I, but my family's originally from Pakistan. So every summer we would go live there. And that was just the way we grew up was understanding our boundaries are way bigger than national borders, right? And like you are a citizen of the world and you need to know your place in the entire world. So being a foreign correspondent for me was always a goal because I knew that there were things missing in the context of how international stories were being reported for U.S. audiences. And I knew a lot of the people on the ground in those places didn't have the same understanding and context and background that I did. So I knew there was something I could add there. But on the ground, I have to say, it was probably one of my most challenging assignments because it's one thing to live in a place where people look like you and you know people share the same names as your family members. It's another thing to report on them because reporting on them means doing so from an objective point of view and being able to really confront uncomfortable truths about things that you may have grown up with as foundational, right? Like assumptions in, in, thing, in the way that you live day to day. So I think those years that I spent in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and I covered the war in Syria and, and reported from Turkey, they were really foundational to me because I saw how the stories we reported on there were really no different than a lot of the stories I reported on back here. The details changed, right? The languages changed, the names changed. But a lot of the same issues that we were covering on the ground about instability or insecurity, what people were worried about day to day, the things they wanted for their families, they were the exact same issues back home. And so I made it one of my goals to try to use journalism to make those connections, to show just how much we all have in common. Um, do you have a specific example that comes to mind of a, of a time that your experience abroad then informed your reporting more domestically? Yeah, I think, honestly, one of the stories that stuck with me is one I told of a young girl I met in Pakistan who was um, a refugee from Afghanistan, like millions of people. She'd only really known a life across the border in Pakistan. And her father had died, so she and her sisters had to work full-time to help support the family. They used to make rugs and sell them. 
but she was such a smart young woman. Like she was just one of the sharp, you meet her and you're like, she's going to be someone. She is going to take over the world one day. Just totally driven, totally ambitious. Her name was Gulbekai. I think she was about 12 when I met her. And I met her because she was in a program that allowed her to work part-time, like be paid for the work that she was doing so she could help feed her family, but then also required she go to school in the afternoons. And that guaranteed both income for her family and education for her. And I watched her in that classroom just take total advantage of every second she had there. Like she threw herself into her work and she had her hand up for every answer. And I remember thinking, God, the gap between what's available to her and what's available to like much of the developed world is so much bigger than it needs to be. If she had been born in the same place I was born, this this young woman's life would be so different. And so I keep her in mind every time I do any reporting anywhere in the world because I think those gaps are something we constantly have to be reminded of, right? Like what's available to us versus what's available to the rest of the world. Awesome. That's a really fascinating story. Um, what motivates you to not only dive into these big issues of education and healthcare and development, but also just to tackle it from a very unconventional approach? Like you've done several features, um, what you're currently doing um, is all just wrapped up in a very, um, I mean, intentional journalistic approach. So kind of what motivates that and what inspires you to take these approaches? You know, I cover the things that I'm interested in. And I'm really lucky to work in a place that allows me to cover everything from politics and elections to immigration to national security to sports and culture. Like, these are all issues I am deeply interested in. And I feel like if I'm interested in them, our audience is probably interested in them too. And I also think it's totally normal and it's totally healthy to have a wide range of interests. You know, I never ever want to cover just one thing because there's not just one thing that matters to me. So I count myself very lucky to be able to use my own interests and my own lived experience and my own curiosity and like willingness and, and, and desire to learn more about things that I have no understanding of and use that to help better inform the American public. Like I think that is the fact that this is a job still blows my mind every day. I get to learn and then I get to tell stories and I get to help build connections. That's kind of wild, right? Like best job in the world. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, so when you're reporting on things that you're passionate about or things where advocacy seems extremely important to you, how do you simultaneously balance that with the need to remain objective in a, in a newsroom where the goal is, at the end of the day, objectivity? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm not an advocate. I'm not an advocate and I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist. Um, and when people say, you know, these are issues where you have to pick a side or it looks like you've picked a side... I, I am always on the side of the facts, and I am always on the side of truth. And when it comes down to it, I'm on the side of decency, you know? And I think we can treat human beings like human beings and still cover really difficult topics. And you can say, like, things are, um, you can call them out for what they are. A lie is a lie. You know, being racist is being racist. I don't think that these are up for debate. It's not a matter of objectivity. Like, there are facts. And there are things that we in the news media now um, are, are more willing to say, I think, because there are more voices, quite frankly, at the editorial table who can say, this is, what, this is the way it needs to be. This is, this is the conversation that we as a country are having right now, and this is how we as journalists participate in it. 
and provide facts and centered around things we know to be provably true and then move it forward. Can you talk a little about the progression over the last decade or so? Because I mean, it seems like we've, like you said, brought in so many new voices. How does, what, what value does that bring to the, to the newsroom? I think it helps us do our jobs better. I think it makes us as journalists better at what we do, which in turn helps to better inform the American public. And that is what we're here to do. Like that is our service. That is our mission. For a long time, a lot of the voices in journalism were dominated by certain lived experiences. And most of the voices at the top were white men. That is not reflective of the American public. And while objectivity was something that was held up as sort of you know, a standard, it was objectivity based on what? It was based on really largely one point of view. And I think the value that diverse and um, varied lived experiences bring is just that. There's a, there's a diversity of, of perspective. There's a diversity of interest. There are story ideas and voices and perspectives that weren't even part of the conversation before that now are. And if you can look at that, and think a broader conversation, a more diverse conversation, a, a conversation with more details and value to it is of value to the American public, then that's what journalism should be. That's what we should strive to do. That's something that you've definitely touched on through your discussion group here at GU Politics. Um, and so from a perspective of a journalist, what advice do you give for combating kind of the confirmation bias we often see and then kind of promoting that balanced dialogue on very partisan issues? It's such a good question. Because honestly, I think journalists need to check ourselves with this too, which is you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Curiosity is at the heart of what we do, right? So I always say, if you think you know everything about a topic, you shouldn't be covering that topic. If you're done asking questions, then you're done reporting on it, right? And I think the same is true for news consumers, which is to say, you've got to be willing to be a little uncomfortable, right? Like open yourself up to ideas and perspectives that you may not or definitely do not agree with just to be able to be exposed to them and to process them or to know how people who disagree with you think and approach these issues. But you also need to have a diverse news diet. I always tell people there's no one source of information you should go to. You should have at least three or four credible sources. Some of them may disagree with each other or provide different details. They might even conflict with one another. And then have an informed opinion, have an informed idea based on facts, not on emotion or outrage or what you want to be true or what people on your social media feed are telling you is true, but based on what credible sources of information are telling you. And that's hard these days. It's really hard when there's so much information flying around. But we and journalists need to be better about being forthright about that and, and, and putting the good information out there and getting it in front of people. But news consumers need to be better about that too. So I'm really interested um, with your experience in, in so many different places, um, how different organizations' approaches to covering truth um, differ. You know, at, at PBS and, and elsewhere, what do you value in, in, in reporting and in, in, in the way all of these newsrooms are organized? Has it been different in different different organizations that you've been a part of? To be honest, I don't know that it has been different. I mean, I think there is this perception that maybe commercial news networks are different than public media. And that's that's true, certainly, logistically. We don't have to deal with commercials, right? Like, NewsHour is an hour every night, 
commercial free. The amount of information you can fit into that, it's, it's just more. You can have longer conversations. You can do longer reports. Like it allows for a little bit more context and nuance than necessarily commercial networks have available to them right now. But I would say every single place I've worked, and I've worked now at two different commercial networks and at, in public media, there are really good journalists striving to do really good work. And the packaging for that might be different, and the platform for that might be different. Maybe the voice and the tone might be different, depending on even what time of day you're watching and consuming the news. But the information that's coming from those journalists is always at the center of what they do. And I, I can say with absolute certainty, you can't name a news outlet right now that I can't tell you there's a really good journalist working there to get out good information. And that's regardless of what the reputation is of the place. And so, again, I think it goes back to the consumer where like you have to be able to take lots of different sources of information into account and then process that information. Sure. Um, so before we wrap up, um, I just had a really quick question about what it's like anchoring versus reporting on the ground or being a, a correspondent. The thing I love about anchoring is you get to control the conversation and guide it through sort of the lens of the viewer. So when I'm sitting in the chair, I'm constantly thinking about if I were at home watching this, what question would I want asked? Like if I had access to this person or the ability to guide this conversation, what kind of things do I want addressed? Like what's important to people out there? And that, that role is, it's both a pleasure, like I have a lot of fun doing it, but it's also a privilege because you're there on behalf of other people. At the same time, you know, I cut my teeth in the field and I, I love being in the field. I love going into people's homes and getting to know them better. Like I like people. I really like people. And I think that's at the heart of being a good journalist is like being interested in people and their lives. So I really appreciate that I have a job that allows me to do both, right? I can guide the conversation and prioritize the stories that I think are important, but I also get to go out and meet people and dip into their lives and you know spend time sitting on their couch with them and having real heart-to-heart -heart conversations and that that is also an absolute pleasure and a real privilege yeah that sounds extremely rewarding it is yeah like i said can't believe this is a job sometimes <laughs> uh, so with that i, I think we're going to move into a more fun section that we call the lightning round. Oh, okay. Um, we're going to ask three brief questions and get maybe briefer answers this Got it. time. Um, so first, we heard that you played field hockey in college. Uh, do you have a favorite field hockey memory to share with us? Oh, gosh. Um, a favorite one? Probably not. I have a lot of, like, traumatized <laughs> memories, I think, of injuries I sustained over the years. I just, I loved playing. I love competing. I love winning. It's it's something deeply embedded in me that will never go away. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, so our second one is you've interviewed some very cool people throughout your career. What is their dream interview you have with someone alive or dead, fictional or real? Ooh, that's really tough. So, hmm, okay. Very personal, but if I could interview anyone, only because I think you can't really understand other people until you understand yourself, I would have loved to have met my late paternal grandmother. I never met her, 
She passed before I was born. She was an enormous influence on my father, who is an enormous influence on me. And that's someone I'd really love to sit down and have like a solid few hours with to be like, let's understand how we got where we are today. Um, Alive, there's so many people. Oh my gosh, where to begin? Colin Kaepernick, I would love to sit down with for a few hours. Um, The Pope, if he's available, please have his people call him. I hear he's got a pretty (laughs) tight schedule these days. Yeah, he's a little busy. I just, you know what? Every single person has a story. Every single person. And so I think I'm really interested in talking to people who don't often talk to reporters and share those stories publicly because they usually have the most to say. Um, So now that the weather is changing, uh, today is actually the first day I've stepped out of my dorm building and gone, oh my goodness, I am am cold. Winter's here. Uh, Mark the calendar date, November 3rd was when (laughs) when winter finally got me. but what what is your favorite like warm winter beverage to to cozy up with? Oh, that is a great question. If I'm trying to impress anyone, I'm going to say it's a nice sophisticated cup of Earl Grey tea. Okay. But legit if you hand me like Swiss Miss hot chocolate, I will be fine. <laughs> I'm I hate cold weather. Anyone who knows me will tell you this. I hate being cold. You will find me inside, wrapped up as I am right now in like several shawls with a warm beverage in my hand. And I kind of don't care what it is as long as it keeps me warm. Do you have like a go-to cozy indoor activity, like binge watching Netflix, reading a book? I can't remember the last time I binge watched. I had the time to do that. I am, I will go so basic on you. And just like, if I have an hour and I've got warm socks and a blanket and I'm sitting in front of the fireplace with a book, like that's me. The most basic Instagram post ever is like <laughs> me on my couch under a shawl next to the fire with a cup of hot cocoa. That was so cool and one of my favorite episodes to date. Yes, I was honored to have participated in that conversation. She is so cool. And so before we sign off, make sure to give us a follow on social media at Fly on the Wall and subscribe to get our podcasts every week. See you next time. <laughs>